Well, grace is only amazing if you realize you're a wretch. Amazing grace for amazing sinners. That's what we're all about at Coastway Church. There's so much I love about that story, amen? I, I, I love that it is a bold and a beautiful summary of what happens when we release control and God takes control. But before that can happen, we have to lose control. We have to recognize that there's a point when we hit rock bottom and what we're doing is just not working. And I just love Cain's humility and just sharing his story with our church. But basically, here's how it goes. It's like God had a plan for my life that was bigger and better than what I had purposed, but I rejected that plan. I went my own way. It was awful. I, I hit rock bottom. It felt like death. But then Jesus stepped in and lifted me up, and death became deliverance. And that's, that's a summary of what happens whenever we say, Jesus, I belong to you, not the other way around. And what I think is really encouraging, this is deeply meaningful for our church for a number of reasons, but number one, we don't just have to look back in the biblical storyline to see God rescuing from ruin, God bringing from death to deliverance. We can look across the aisle we can look across the community group. We could just look around this room and, you know, that was, that was Cain's story of how God brought him from death to deliverance, but maybe that's your story. Maybe there's a lot that he shared that you could relate with in, in that testimony. But what I think is incredible is that God is an actively present God who's still rescuing the proverbial Jonas who like to run from ruin and restoring us to life in him. And I don't know how you walked in here today, but here's what I will say. We need a lot of hope and we need a lot of help. I can speak for all of us when we say we need a lot of help and we need a lot of hope. And where do we go when we need a lot of hope and we need a lot of help? We go to the word of God for a word from God. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles. You might have the Bible on your app. It might be in your lap. If neither, then we're going to have the scriptures on the screen. Open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Now, finding the book of Jonah is a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. So let's just kind of do this together. And no shade or shame if you need to go to the table of contents to figure out where is Jonah anyway. But basically, let's just kind of go Bible 101. There's two parts of the Bible. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. The Old Testament, that's where Jonah is, is salvation planned and predicted. The New Testament is salvation purchased and powered. So there's a uh, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, there's 27 in the New Testament, and Jonah is kind of tucked away like a needle in a haystack in the final and fourth quarter of the Old Testament. So right about the time that the names start sounding like Star Wars characters, you've got Obadiah, Haggai, Chewbacca, Jonah, he's in there somewhere. I thought that was very funny. I would share it again with you. That's Jonah. So whenever, whenever you find Jonah, then uh, you're in the right place. In case you missed it last week, we learned a couple of things. Let me catch you up or maybe do a quick review. First of all, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Did you know that running from God is like trying to escape the sun? On a cloudless day in an open field, you can run as far and as far and as far as you, as you try, as hard as you can, and you look around and it's no farther away. It actually feels like it's even closer. Here's the thing, Jonah learned this the hard way. You see, the story starts with the Lord calling and commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which is in modern-day Iraq. 
So just to give you some perspective about the gravity of this calling, this was the most vicious and violent people on the planet. They delighted in torturing their enemies. They boasted in, they took pride in a gory, blood-curdling history. Imagine being, being an enemy uh, of someone who's a terrorist, a tyrant, a murderer, and, and you step into their country and it's like you're done. But what's, what's even more disturbing about the Ninevites is how VeggieTales describes them. They say those talking vegetables, maybe you know about these guys, they said the Ninevites like to slap people in the face with fishes. Awful. Can't imagine. I hope that doesn't happen to you. But uh, more perspective, imagine being sent to call up and call out ISIS to repent of their, their violent and vicious ways. You would say, oh, the, nobody does that. Well, Jonah would say nobody goes to Nineveh. It feels like a suicide mission. And so naturally, Jonah says, those people deserve to perish. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, Jonah went to not Nineveh. <laughs> he came up with a not good plan, and he went to not Nineveh. And that's really the only two options that we have, is we can go where God calls us, or we can go to not where God calls us. It's, there's really not a whole lot of gray areas. But instead of going 500 miles east to Nineveh over land, which is where God was calling him from the place where he was at the time, he travels 2,500 miles west by sea to a place called Tarshish. And what's interesting is we will work five times harder to disobey God, to go our own way, to hold on to our own idols, than we will just to do what he says and trust him as it goes. But we saw this last week. Anytime you want to run from God, a ship will be ready to sail you into rebellion. And so Jonah, he boards a ship that's headed to not Nineveh. And while on the ship, God sends a great storm. Jonah admits, hey, it's, it's my fault. I caused this storm. The sailors throw him overboard. The storm stops. Jonah sinks to the bottom of the ocean floor. And amazingly, not for a moment did God forsake Jonah, even though Jonah ran off like a dummy and completely disobeyed everything God was pursuing him at every step. So we learned you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Next, we learned we are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater Savior. You can't outrun God's presence, but you also can't outsin God's grace. So far in the story, Jonah's done the opposite of everything God told him to do, but God still doesn't give up on him. And what we need to see, friends, is that one of the great purposes of Jonah being included in redemptive history and in the inspired scriptures, is to showcase the immensity of God's grace toward people who like to run, like to resist, and like to rebel. We would think that by now Jonah is done and he ought to be dead, but here's the sermon in a sentence that I want to just go ahead and give to you today. This is where we are going and what we will see. Death turns into deliverance as we humbly turn to Jesus. What is it called when we do this, when we humbly turn to Jesus? Well, it's called repentance. That's the one-word summary of how we stop going our way and we start going God's way. We stop living in our own works and we start trusting in the finished work of Jesus. And so Jonah, he spent all of chapter 1 running from God. He's going to have to spend chapter 2 repenting to God. And so here's what is repentance. It's like, well, that's, that sounds like something who's angry, standing on a street corner who doesn't love people would, would shout. And unfortunately, that does happen. But what is repentance? Well, here's what you need to know. Repentance changes everything. 
Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart that leads to a change in direction. And what's amazing about repentance is that it's not about perfection. It's just about your direction. You don't have to be perfect to repent. You just have to be guided by God and say, "That's God, you're better at calling the shots than I am. And so far, Jonah's life has been stubbornly aimed in the wrong direction. And so what happens? We're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 17, then we're going to work all the way through chapter 2. So take a look. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And a lot of commentators and people just start to speculate. It's like, what kind of fish was this? You know, you know, was this some big, ugly catfish? Was this a whale? Was this a grouper? And I can just tell you, I don't know. It was some big, ugly thing in the water that I hope that you don't see in Myrtle Beach that was probably terrifying to Jonah. The, the, the type of fish is not the point. The fish is only mentioned a couple of times in the story, but God is mentioned well over 30 times in the story. So it's not about the fish, it's about God. But I want you to notice something in verse 17. Notice how it says, the Lord appointed all this. So here's some hope. What often feels like a disappointment for us is actually an appointment from God. Here's the leading question that I want to ask you. In what area of your life do you feel swallowed up with disappointment? Is it your health? Is it your marriage? Is it your kids? Is it, is it not having enough money or always wanting to chase after more money? Do you feel like you don't have a purpose? Do you feel like your circumstances are impossible? Whatever that is, here's what I want to encourage you with. God will meet you there if you will invite him in. One of our favorite verses to quote when we're not going through it is Romans 8, 28. And we know, for those who love God, he works all things together for good according to his great purposes. But we leave off Romans 8, 29. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, who defines good, you or God? Well, we tried it back in the garden, and that was failure to launch. I would say let's go with God. What is good in God's eyes? You become like Jesus. And if by God giving you what you ask him for would make you less like Jesus, he's going to give you what you would have asked for that would make you more like Jesus. I was texting with one of our commission members just this week, and uh, it, was, it was just amazing uh, to see how she was basically, her name's Diane, and, and she got sick. And uh, this was something that, that didn't happen very, very long ago, but she got sick again. And I was just texting with her, and I said, Diane, I'm so sorry that you're not feeling with you, uh, feel, feeling well. I'm praying for you, friend. And I want you to hear what she responded to that text. Thank you for your prayers. I know the Lord has a greater purpose in all of this. Perhaps to just give me some extended quality time with him. My intent is to pursue him during this time. Holy Spirit, heaven down. Thank you, Diane, because I know you're watching. You're a great example of faith to all of us. Think about it. Why, why does God go to all these lengths for Jonah? He's sent into a great storm. He's swallowed by a great fish. I'll tell you why. It's because he has a great plan. And that great plan will prevail. It's better than Jonah's plan. It's better than your, your plan. And it always prevails for those who love him. 
You see, the amazing part of this plan is that somehow it still includes Jonah, even though Jonah ran off like an idiot. When God called him to do something, he went to the opposite direction. And I, I confess last week, God's still working on me, guys. I confess last week how if I'm God, then I'm going to do two things. I'm going to end Jonah, and I'm going to enlist someone else. I'm not going to give him the time of day to go on and uh, you know, do this again. And I, you know, Don't act brand new like that's not you. We all, we all do this. Have you ever canceled someone who let you down? Someone who hurt you, who caused you pain, who called you names, who took something from you? Here's the good news. God's ways are not our ways. And God's ways are unchanging. And that's good because those who we choose to cancel, God chooses to cover. You go back to the garden when Adam and Eve blew it. You and I, we would have canceled Adam and Eve. But you know what God did? The first thing he did, beyond warning them of the consequences and telling them that, hey, this is not going to go well, it breaks my heart that this happened, but the first thing he does is he comes down and he makes a sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve from their shame, even though they blew it. Are you doing that for your enemies? Is that the kind of heart that you have for the people who wrong you? We're so less like God than we should be. But those who we're out to punish, God's out to pardon. You see, on the cross, Jesus cries as he dies. What? Curse these people. No. No, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't even know what they're doing. You keep reading Jonah 1, 17, verse B. And Jonah was in the belly of, fish, of the fish three days and three nights, so I just, I'll say this out loud, this would have been an awful experience. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be in the stomach of a fish for three days? Like, put yourself, put yourself there for a moment. The temperature was around 110 degrees. We think it's hot in Myrtle Beach. This isn't H-O-T, this is H-A-W-T, halt. It is halt in that fish, as Eleanor likes to say. He couldn't move his arm. The stomach fluids would have continually washed over him, bleaching his skin, and it probably smelled like a neglected outhouse at bike week. Not a good thing. Be warned. It's coming. Real quick, some people are like, could this even happen? Is this even possible? And no, it's not possible without God. This is what we call a miracle. It was a miracle the fish was there. When Jonah was thrown overboard, it was a miracle that he was kept alive for three days inside the stomach of a fish. But if you believe that there is a God who created the world with a word, if you believe that there was God present in Jesus, healing the sick and rising again from the grave, then this really should not even trouble us. And again, we got to see this is not an account of a great fish as much as it is an account of a great God going after a great sinner. And here's the grace. God's purpose in all this was never to hurt Jonah. It was to humble Jonah. It was never to pay Jonah back. It was to bring Jonah back. And like all of us, here's what had to happen for Jonah to wake up and come to his senses and realize he's throwing his life away. He had to come to the end of himself before he would come to the beginning of God. You see, as we walk through chapter 2, I want to show you what humble, heartfelt repentance looks like. And I say humble 
because humility is the oxygen of repentance. In over a decade of pastoring, let me tell you something I've never seen. I've never seen someone come to me or call me or schedule a meeting with me because of problems that were caused because they were too humble. It's always pride problems, man. I've never had somebody come and call and complain and say, man, you know, my spouse is just too humble. My kids, just, they, they, they do what I asked them to do. Or my boss just shows me a lot of, a lot of grace and listens to me. Or man, my, my ex is just like, they're, they're really being gracious and apologetic about the hurt that they caused. No, that doesn't happen. It's always pride problems that are at the root of our complaints. And here's, the, here's what we got to see before we're even ready to read chapter two. We can humble ourselves or, or God can do it for us. We can humble ourselves or God can do it for us. And here's what is so humbling about Jonah's story is the way that God delivers Jonah. It's humbling. And the way that God delivers us, it's humbling. So Jonah is swallowed up in the belly of a fish and he's confined to what feels like hell for three days. But he's not quite done. He's, he's got another chance. How does God save us? By swallowing up into a crucified Jewish rabbi who people like to make fun of and people like to mock and people like to say is a myth. The cross is intended to humble us. Forgiveness is intended to humble us. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something to the effect of, if everyone is running off a cliff, they're going to think that you're foolish when you're not. You know, it's, it's easy for you to, you know, you get around the world and you get around people who are committed to rebellion and committed to self-rule and the gospel sounds silly. Well, of course it does. People are running off of a cliff. And so here's what we see. Number one, repentance is humbly admitting your need for deliverance. Repentance is humbly admitting your need for deliverance. It's interesting to consider that the fish didn't immediately swallow Jonah when he was thrown overboard. I think we romanticize the story and we think that jo Jonah, before he even hits the water, like this fish jumps out and like grabs and it. it didn't work that way. I'll show it to you in just a moment. But chapter two, verses one through seven, what is it? It's, it's Jonah describing the experience of drowning in the depths of the ocean. And so in these verses, Jonah describes himself sinking down and down and down. And he ends at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, which marine biologists, divers will tell you, drops to depths of 17,000 feet. We don't know how, how deep Jonah dropped, but it would make sense that it would be a very deep depth to illustrate the depth of his rebellion and help us see how desperate we are without God. But it's obvious, if he's not dead by this point, and if he did not physically literally drown, then he's unconscious. <laughs> And somewhere down there, what happens? He gets swallowed by a big, ugly fish. And here's, can you imagine that moment? Because maybe he was unconscious when he was swallowed. Maybe he didn't even see the fish swallow him. We don't know. We're not told. That's speculation. But here's something that very easily did and could have happened is he wakes up in the belly of the fish and he says, I've died and gone to hell. This, this, this is it for me. And he's, he's there, and he's, he, there's nowhere that he can run. There's nothing he can do. He's humbled beyond any claim of independence and any hope in idolatry, and he's left to reflect on the foolishness of his plans without God. 
and he's put in a place to where he has no choice but to say he needs deliverance. There's, there's no denying it at this point. Have you ever been there? Have you ever dated someone and that just went really, really bad? Maybe you had godly friends. Maybe people in the church were saying, hey, that, that's, that person is not moving in the same direction that you are. Or maybe have you ever bought something stupid and racked up a lot of debt that you couldn't pay off? Or you ever done something that got you some jail time? Or I, I don't know, got a tattoo that you regret? I don't know. You know. Stuff like that happens in Myrtle Beach, all of the above. But the point is, you get to a place to where you're like, I can't get myself out of this. I remember a couple of years ago when we were actually here in Myrtle Beach, we were uh, going swimming and we were actually praying about moving here to plant Coastway Church. And Eleanor, we put floaties on her for the first time and she just felt this newfound sense of freedom. She was like, oh, this is awesome. I could actually move in the water without mom or dad coming and helping me out. And she got a little too confident because what we told her was, hey, don't, don't go in the water without the floaties. And so here's, the, here's the, the deal. She thought that she was doing it. She didn't realize that the provision of the parents was what kept her afloat. And so she took off the floaties, and what did she do? She got in the pool by herself with no floaties, and she sank to the bottom. Now, fortunately, it wasn't too deep. We were on it. But in that moment, there's no denying that she needed to be delivered. God has to go to different measures to get different people to this place, to a place of humble admission. I mean, let's be honest. Some people are born at the hospital. They get popped on the bottom. They burnt Jesus, and they've been sensitive to the ways of God ever since. Here's how it sounds. This is what people will say, which, by the way, this is not a biblical statement. I've always been a Christian. No, you have not. You've just hid your rebellion behind religion, and it's harder to see. Here's, here's what you ought to say. That's fake news. Nobody has always been a Christian. You were born a dirty, rotten sinner. Not a lot of amens right there. But all of us, we, it's humbling to think that we were born sinners by nature and by choice and that we persist in that sin and we, we, we go to the empty wells of religion. I'm going to perform rebellion or I'm going to just seek pleasure and break all the rules. And so here's what you can say. If you look back on your life, you can say, hey, since I can remember, my heart has always been responsive to the ways of God. And there was, there was a point when I came to the end of myself and I recognized that Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, is the only means by which I could be saved. So maybe, maybe that's you. If it is, praise God and count that boring testimony as a gift of grace from Almighty God. But for most of us, God had to knock, knock our hats in the creek. He, he had to do something significant and seismic to get our attention, and we still didn't listen. <laughs> so what's happening is you can humble yourself or God can do it for you, I love what Mike Tyson said. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. How, how's that going? That's, that's the question that God wants to ask. How's that plan that you had without me? The problem is most of us are just so stubbornly proud to admit when we're wrong that we keep being more and more wrong and trying to dig ourselves out of a ditch that we got ourselves into. But here's, here's the deal. Pride is the root of our running. It's always behind our resisting of God. And what God does is he graciously lets us be punched in the mouth to see that our plans without him don't work. And maybe, maybe it's been a broken marriage. Maybe it's been a bad health report. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was a breakup. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe you got caught doing something that God said, hey, don't go there. 
that people in the church who love you said, hey, don't go there. But just because you need to be delivered, this is important, doesn't mean that repentance has run its course. Yet what lifeguards will tell you is if someone is drowning, that the probably what you need to try and do is you need to toss something in so that they can grab it and you can pull them in. The reason why is because a drowning person will completely lose control and they will actually take you down into the depths and it will be two people who drown. Now, you can do that whenever you hit rock bottom. Is whenever God steps in or he sends people and don't listen, like you jump in and it's like they're gonna try to take, take you down instead of being pulled up. And here's the question. The question that we have to ask is this, where do you turn for deliverance? For repentance to truly be of God and from God, you have to turn to God. Because there's a lot of places that we could turn and just go farther and farther into the ditch. And Isaiah 59.1 says that the Lord's arm is not so short that it cannot save. And here's kind of how it hit me this week. Have you ever seen a T-Rex? All right, you won't forget this. They got these little arms right here, and they got these short arms. And so what we think is, we think that God is like a T-Rex. It's like he's reaching out, but he just can't get to us. He can't get there. And so because he can't reach us with his arms, the only way that he could get to us is with his mouth. And so whenever he comes in and does get us, he bites our heads off. That's how we think about, like, if, if I hit rock bottom and I, that's my God view, I'm not going to go to him for salvation, But verse 1, watch what Jonah does. Then. All right, so when is then? This was after three days. Jonah has been in the belly of the fish for three days. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Jonah sat in his pride for three days. What this shows us is the depth of Jonah's dilemma. You see, God called Jonah to preach his mercy to people who didn't deserve it, to people who were vicious, to people who were violent. These were people who bragged about brutality. And what does Jonah say? He says, nope. This is important to see because Jonah worshiped and worked for God. Of all people that you would think would be ready to preach mercy, it would be Jonah. He was known for doing all the right things. And that's what makes this story relatable. So often as Christians, we think we're doing all the right things. Or so often as non-Christians, we think that we're doing all the, all the right things. But what happens is even, even in the Christian life, we will only obey God up to a certain point. And then there's that one thing that we won't do or won't let God come near. And it could be a number of things. It could be like uh, an outlook on sexuality, dating, relationships. It's like, I don't care what God says about wisdom right here. I'm going to date who I want, how I want, when I want, and you can't tell me anything. Or I'm going to hook up, shack up, break up with whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want. God, you can't tell me anything. And the trespassing sign goes in the yard of your view on sexuality and dating and relationships. And we're like, God, you can come in as close as you want, but just stay off the grass right here. Or parenting, this is real. Many times as parents, we think that by controlling our kids through some technique or routine, through some diet or some niche form of discipline that they will turn out better than if we just admitted how much we don't have a clue what we're doing. Ever been there? (laughs) On that note, if God wanted his kids to have perfect parents, he would not have given them to you. Furthermore, 
if perfect parenting led to perfect children, then one-third of the angels would not have rebelled. You've got to release control, and you've got to recognize the limitations of how much you can and cannot control the outcome in our kids' lives. Guys, just to be 100 with you, I put Eleanor's onesies on backward for a year. Somebody notified me of this. It was very alarming. You're like, how is that kid still alive? God's grace in Victoria. That's how she's still alive, but it just goes to show you, hey, God's got this when we surrender to him. Maybe another one is, is, is money. God says this. He says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, pastor, that's good, that's good. I, I like that one, I like that. Does your bank statement like that? Does it reflect the conviction that I genuinely believe that God gave me everything that I need for life, joy, and happiness, so now I'm free to pour back out and deposit into others to advance the mission of God? You see, God wants all of our hearts, not just parts of our hearts. He is jealous for you. And there's a difference between just jealousy and petty jealousy, and I'll tell it to you this way. Just jealousy is the jealousy that a spouse has for their that a husband has for a wife, that a wife has for a husband. It's like if you go to your spouse and you say, hey, listen, I've been 98% faithful to you during our marriage. You're just like, well, pull the car over. That's 100% unfaithful. And God, God, what we do with God is we say, God, I've I've been 98% faithful to you. But he's like, what about that one one thing that you won't let me come near? He wants it. Verse 2, Jonah prayed, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So what's the solution when your life feels like death? It's repentance. And repentance is humbly asking God to be your deliverer. When you feel like death, you go to God as your deliverer. What's this all about? This is about prayer. This is about crying out to God. Did you know that prayer is how you start, that prayer is how you sustain the Christian life? You can't even start the Christian life without prayer. Romans 10, 13. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. That's how you start. Sustaining. Psalm 50, 15 is, when I was in a place where I needed to be delivered, I called upon him in the day of trouble, he delivered me, and now I glorify him. That's the steady refrain of the Christian life is prayer. It's, and you, you look at Jonah and you're like, it's about time he prayed. <laughs> Because Jonah didn't pray about Nineveh. He didn't pray about Joppa. He didn't pray about the ship. He didn't pray for the sailors. It took 17 verses, an entire chapter of Jonah's life before he even prayed. Here's a guy who wouldn't pray and now he's crying out to God. So what can we learn right here? Well, first, we learn that when we don't pray, life goes poorly. Are there problems in your life that you are complaining about, but you are not praying about? then you, you have just uncovered the place in your life where faith has to fill. <laughs> prayer has to come. Well, something that we say often is prayer is our first response, not our final resort. The second thing that we see is God hears the prayers of his people. So how do God's people pray? Well, how did Jonah pray? Take a look at this. He prayed passionately. Notice what it says in verse 2. I called out to the Lord. Let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed passionately? When you called out to the Lord as if your life depended on it? 
When was the last time you did that for your lost neighbor who's far from God but close to you? When was the last time you did that for that, that severe diagnosis? When was the last time you did that for that relational conflict instead of swooping in and trying to be Superman or Wonder Woman and fixing it on your own? I was talking to a mentor of mine this week, and he said something that really settled in with me. He said, I want my heart and my emotion and prayer to match what's before me. If I'm worried about this, I'm going to go to God. If I'm afraid of this, I'm going to go to God, and it's going to be past it. Next, pray desperately. Notice how it says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. So Sheol is not Hebrew for Highway 501 in July. Some of you guys thought that, but it's actually Hebrew for death. It literally means that you, you have come to the place of death. So if you want to pray more, you need to be more desperate. You see, discipline can only take you so far. And I would submit that the reason why we don't pray is not because we get too distracted, not because we lack the discipline. It's because we're not desperate. Let me ask you this. Are you desperate for God to work in your life? Are you desperate for God to deliver you from temptation? Are you desperate for God to use you in his mission? A major reason why we're not desperate is because we don't see the world with the heart and eyes of God. If we did, we would be desperate. Next, pray biblically. In verses 2 through 7, Jonah quotes four different psalms. So what I want you to see is that Jonah knew the Bible well, and it paid off in his time of need. And here's what I want to ask you. Are you storing up God's word in your heart for the tests and the trials of everyday life. Because here's, here's where I think a lot of our problem is. is We're okay having a Bible in our hand, but we never get the Bible in our heart. And so we'll, we'll have a passion with no Bible. What is that? It's all feelings. Everything is based on how I feel. And so you're like a ship without a rudder running against the rocks. It's like you're a wreck. Because it's all, what do I feel? What do I think? You know, this is going awful. But there's no Bible. There's no truth. But then a Bible with no passion is just cold facts. That's not going to be loving. That's not going to help. But a Bible plus passion, that's what we call faith. A question would be, how do we pray? How do we pray biblically? We see that Jonah was doing it. The question is, are we doing it? And here would be an example. Man, if you're, if you're discouraged, would you pray Psalm 27, 13? For I believe that I will look upon the goodness of God in the land of the living. If you're tempted, would you pray 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but in the moment of temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you could stand up under it and say, God, I know there's a way out of this temptation, and I'm asking you to show it to me because your word promises it's there. Or maybe you're anxious. Would you pray 1 Peter 5, 7? God, you tell me that when I feel like I've lost control, you still have control, so I'm going to cast all my cares on you because you care for me. Are you brokenhearted? Would you pray Psalm 34, 18? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God, would you give me an awareness of your nearness in this moment because my heart is breaking. When you're confused and don't know what to do, and all disoriented, would you pray James 1, 5? That if any of you lacks wisdom, he can ask God who gives generously to those who seek wisdom from him. You feel disengaged from the mission of God? 
Would you pray Isaiah 6, 8, God, here I am again. Would you send me again? Left to ourselves, we pray selfish prayers, but as God's word gets in us, death turns into deliverance. Even so that when life cuts us, we start to bleed God's word. It's just what comes out of us. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Next, we need to pray honestly. We need to be honest with God. God, you did this. God, you didn't stop this. Have you ever avoided someone because you couldn't be honest with them? Have you ever looked the other way or screened the call or canceled the meeting because you just couldn't be your real self in front of that real person? I just want to encourage you, don't do that with God. The Bible is full of honest prayers that sound like heresy at times. Job prayed this, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. So here's what this might look like. God, this is hard. It feels like death, and I'm going to be honest with you. God, I hate this circumstance. God, I hate this illness. God, I hate this injury. God, I hate my ex. God, I hate my job. God, I, I hate my, my relationship status. And what we ought to do is we ought to hold deeply to what God says, but be honest about what we feel. He's big enough. He's tough enough. He can handle it. And so Jonah, what is he doing? He's expressing what he feels in his heart with a Bible in his hand. And we got to do the same thing. Verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So this is the second time that Jonah mentions the temple of the Lord. The temple is where God's presence dwelled and his people worshiped. And he's thinking about both for the first time in a while. And this is where our heart has to go in these moments of death, in these moments of difficulty. Verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake or forfeits their hope of steadfast love. So here's what I want you to see right here. This is the key verse in the entire book of Jonah. There are 24 verses before it. There are 23 after it. It is right in the middle, and it's the point of the whole book. So the question that we have to ask is, who is Jonah talking about when he says, those, those who are those people who pay regard to idols? So when he mentions idolatry, this would make you think that he's talking about the Ninevites or those sailors on the ship who would get out their little handkerchiefs that had been blessed by the televangelists who ripped them off, or their little shrines, or their little gods that they kept around. They started praying to them in the storm, and they didn't answer. You would think that when he talks about idols, he's talking about people like that. But he uses another word in the same phrase, and that's steadfast love. And here's what's curious. This was an exclusively Hebrew phrase for God's covenant love for Israel. So what do we know? We know that idolatry is associated with the sailors and the Ninevites. We know that steadfast love is associated with Jonah and Israel. What's the point? Three things. All people are guilty of idolatry. Whether you go to church or don't go to church. Whether you hide behind religion or hide behind rebellion. And secondly, 
All people are objects of God's steadfast love. He has set his affection on the worst of us. And thirdly, idolatry is the primary way we forfeit God's steadfast love. So here we see, finally, number three, repentance is abandoning your hope in idols. So an idol is anything you hope in more than God. The, the English word for worship, it's interesting, it comes from an old English word that can be translated worth-ship. And so an, an idol is something that we worship. It's something that we attribute the greatest amount of worth and weight to in our lives. It's something that we couldn't live without. And so we like to think, man, I'm not guilty of idolatry. That's the person beside me. That's the person who lives across the street. That's not me, but we're all guilty of idolatry. And here's the thing about our idols. They don't want you to know that they're there. They don't want you to know that they're charging you your entire life. uh, um, They like to hide, but they're hard to find is a way to think about idols. Have you ever seen somebody out on the beach? They've got a metal detector, and they're they're just like covering over the sand, and they're trying to find some something good or, you know, sometimes you bring up something that's not good. Well, here's what I want to do is I just want to give you four questions, and this can be an idolatry detector. This can bring up something in your heart that's not good that maybe is taking the place of God. The first question is this. What one thing have you sacrificed the most for? Is it sports? Is it your career? Is it your hobby? Is it your image? The fact is, what we uh, pursue the hardest is what we prize the most. Next, what do you worry about losing? Is it money? Is it your family? Is it your health? Is it your status? Is it an election? These are the things that have our hearts. Where do you turn when life gets tough? Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a pet. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a food, but it's commanding and controlling your life because that's the place that you go whenever you feel like death, and that's the thing that you're looking to for deliverance over and above God. Next, who can you just not forgive? This one's hard because unforgiveness is smoke that's rising from the fires of our idolatry, and I'll I'll show this to you. The reason you can't forgive, it's very simple, is because they took something from you that you feel like was your life. And people can't take God from you. That's something that can never, ever be taken. We see this in Romans chapter 8 when Paul is worshiping and rehearsing the gospel, and he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from God in Christ. And here's here's the thing. If you focus on the offense, you're never going to forgive That offense is going to be enlarged in your life to the point to where it controls you. But if you focus on the cross, bitterness will never make sense. You'll be able to forgive as Christ first forgave you. And here's the hard truth. Any answers to these questions other than God are functional idols. You're giving your heart to them. And Tim Keller, he says that there are four possible responses in our lives whenever our idols disappoint. Number one, we can blame the idol. It's like my addiction was the reason why I hit rock bottom. It wasn't my fault. It was what what that alcohol did to me. It was what that relationship did to me. Number two, you could blame yourself 
And you could say, oh, I'm so bad, God could never forgive me. That is an idolatrous statement because it says that your word and your verdict over your sin holds higher than God's word. <laughs> and, and, and he says, if, you're, if you will confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so his word speaks louder than ours. Or we will blame the world and we'll say, problem out there. It's, it's all out there. It's not in me. Or the fourth option, and this is where the, refresh, the refreshment of repentance comes in, is you can turn to God. You can turn to God and recognize that what you are seeking in the arms of your idol can only be delivered to you in the arms of Jesus. As Jonah put it in his prayer, idols make you pay. And what is the cost that they charge? The love of God, your very life. What has Jonah done? He's admitted his need and he's asked for a deliverer. And now here, he's in a place where he's ready to start the long, painful detox process of abandoning his idols. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you instead of idols. What I have vowed, I will pay. This is a beautiful statement because now he's saying, God, I owe my life, my trust, and my hope to you, but I've been giving it to this ideal and this idol that was taking your place in my life. Now I'm going to live for you. And from this, Jonah, he quotes the Psalms and he declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. And what he's saying right here is he's sobered up and he's saying, there is no idol that can deliver you. There's no idol that can satisfy the deepest longings in the recesses of your heart. But salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's what that means. It's very simple. Salvation is by grace alone. That ought to humble us. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And it's for all people. That ought to give us confidence. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Bad day, man. Man, it's, it's, it's one thing for you to, to puke and throw up. It's another thing for a fish to throw you up, man. But, but what we see right here is that God's word commanded the fish. God's word always accomplishes what God's word commands. And right here, God commanded a sea, cre sea creature. But years later on Calvary's hill, he would command our sin debt. And hanging there, he would cry as he dies to tell us die. And this is the word for completion something that is done, something that is finished, he would say, it is finished. What is finished? Sin, death, Satan, hell. And this is why we need to read the book of Jonah in two ways. One is we see ourselves as guilty as Jonah. It's the only way that you can read this and get it right. You see yourself as guilty as Jonah, but secondly, the only way that you can read this and get this right is because we're, lo we're looking through the lens of the empty tomb when we read Jonah. Is we see the, uh, that Jesus is the greater Jonah. Not only was, uh, are we as guilty as Jonah, but Jesus is the greater Jonah. And you, you see, you know what this sounds like when Jonah is in the belly of the fish? It feels like and sounds like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed just like Jonah. And in that moment, he went down to the deep with the weeds of sin wrapped around his head. 
the waves of death were closing around him. And he would go on to cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever asked God, why? Why, God? And the answer is, so you would never be forsaken, I first forsook my son. I love what Cain said, I came to realize that only God could keep me alive through all that I was doing to myself. And you gotta, you got to see that as your story too. Everything we did wrong was cast on Jesus so that everything Jesus did right could count for us. The truth is none of us ultimately have to go through what Jonah went through because Jesus went through it for us. Romans 4.24, Paul writes, Jesus was delivered over to death so we could be delivered out of death. And I, how do you look at that and come up with anything but humble repentance? Romans chapter 2 says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You see, it's one thing for God to put you in the belly of the well. It's another thing for God to put his own son in the belly of the well so that you wouldn't have to stay there. See, that moves us from this sense of, like, I have to do this to I get to do this, from a place of obligation to a place of opportunity. And this is why we ought to see ourselves in Jonah and be warned but we ought to see Jesus in Jonah and worship. And here's so the invitation today, it's very simple. Are you, are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? If so, Jesus is calling you. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? If so, Jesus is calling you. So what does it look like for us to humbly turn to Jesus? Well, here's, there's two things, and then I just I want to invite you to encounter God in this moment. I want to invite you to do, to do two things. And I, I won't go ahead and ask our care team to get in place because maybe you need to physically move and have someone come. Or you, you come and have someone pray for you and encourage you. Um, but here's what I want to encourage you to think about as, as we respond. Number one, consider where in your life are you running from God? Where is it? Are you angry? Have you given that anger to God? Are you addicted? Have you tried to get out of that addiction on your own? Is it some ambition that doesn't align with the will of God? Have, have you given that over to God just to see what happens? You know, maybe it was something, maybe it's something just that was done to you and you're just, you've tried to deal with that in your own power, but God says, no, give that to me. So consider where are you running for God? Next, completely surrender all to him. Would you, would you move from dependence on yourself to dependence to God? Would you repent of the independent ways toward God? Would you repent of the idolatry? Would you repent of the impatience? And would you bring it before the feet of a faithful God who's still going after Jonah's today?